The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. There are some people that make their work just another thing they have to do. And there are those that make their work something that they want to do. Welcome to Working on Purpose with your host, Elise Cortez. In our program, we provide guidance and inspiration from those people who have found deeper meaning and personal connection to their work life. It's beyond 9 to 5. It's Working on Purpose. Now, here is your host, Elise Cortez. Welcome back to the Working on Purpose show. Thanks for tuning in again this week. I'm your host, Elise Cortez, joining you from Dallas, Texas, which is my home base. As you know, if you've been tuning in for a while, this show is all about showcasing guests who are meaningfully connected to their work in the hopes that we can learn from and be inspired by their stories to pursue our own career dreams to truly work on purpose. I selected this week's guest and according content because I think many of us are fascinated with the world of psychology and what makes people tick. And we want to understand what both facilitates good well-being as well as what kinds of issues maybe challenge it. With us this week is Penny Kruger, who is a licensed social worker and serves as the clinical director of Dialectical Behavior Therapy Intensive Outpatient Program at Seton Behavioral Health in Austin, Texas. She also has a private practice with DBT Associates. Penny, it is so great to have you on the show. Welcome. Thank you, Elise. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to it. Me too. I've known you for many, many years and gotten to know your work gradually over the course of our conversation, so I couldn't resist asking you to the show. Thank you again. You have lots to share. Uh, but, to, but to start, one of the things that I find intriguing about you, Miss Penny, is that you know, your interest and connection to your work began early. So if maybe you could say a little bit about how, how it is and, and why you chose a career in mental health. Well, you know, actually, I think that uh, for many people that come into my field, though, I think they come in because of struggles they've had of their own and, and family histories that have brought them to the field to sort of increase, you know, personal understanding. But for me, I think it was um, more about learning early on that for whatever reason that I seem to be uh, a container uh, for people to approach and to share their um, emotions and secrets with. I learned that early on when I was in school and that people appeared to trust me with their personal lives. And even at an early age, I really appreciated that and was honored by that. Um, however, with where I am today in my career, I found out soon after I got my degree that my my real love came from um, finding out that I had an ability to sort of be with patients that were really struggling with a lot of severe emotional dysregulation that some of my other colleagues just didn't necessarily have a preference for or had a hard time responding to or tolerating. And um, I found that it was a space that uh, I felt really comfortable in. Mm-hmm. 
Well, to help us understand, I have never heard the term emotional dysregulation, and I teach various psychology courses. Now, I don't teach clinical psychology, but help us understand, what do you mean by emotional dysregulation? Sure. Um, and, uh, you know, to normalize, of course, we, before we pathologize, you know, I think that, um, you know, we can all be emotionally dysregulated in the sense that we can all have moments of feeling hijacked by our arousal, where our our fight-or-flight system feels strongly activated, and it doesn't mean it always matches what's actually happening in front of us at the time. Um, and so when I talk about treating people that are struggling with emotional dysregulation, it means that they have a pretty pervasive pattern, either throughout development or across time and setting, um, where they have a high sensitivity to stimuli and cues in the environment. They tend to have a high-intensity reaction um, to the stimuli, and it takes them a long time to return to baseline, which means that, you know, their their heightened need state can last um, uh, a long period of time where, <clears throat> you know, people around them uh, have an expectation for them to be to be able to calm down or pull it together, um, and they truly biologically have a hard time uh, being able to do this. So that's kind of where I come in. Okay. Awesome. Thank you. That was helpful. All of that explanation, obviously, there's a lot of scientific terms you used in there, which, of course, I appreciate because I do want this show to be educational in nature along with inspiring. So that was helpful. And along those lines, Penny, it's likely that there's many listeners out there that have purposely tuned into the show because maybe they're considering going into the field of psychology or maybe they're cha- they want to change careers and they're thinking about it or maybe they're, they're young people that are just getting out of college and considering going into the field. So I think it would be great if you could help us understand how you got your initial start in the field. What were some of your early jobs? I think you, I think you studied social work for, 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 for your education. Is that right? I did. I did. I got my master's in social work at Tulane University, and I was <clears throat> really lucky um, to have an opportunity during that time to work with a really talented group of people at a hospital in New Orleans that was doing a lot of specialty work with um, eating disorders and with sexual trauma and sexual compulsivity. And so that was my first exposure to working with, you know, impulsive behavioral patterns and, you know, uh, suicidality and um, high emotional intensity. Um, And so, but I was in school at the time and learning alongside of that, but that is where I also first was exposed to dialectical behavior therapy for the first time. Um, So I worked on the unit and was able to... Uh, learned to work with patients in groups, and um, I was also able to have an opportunity to work with patients in regards to self-injury and skills for managing self-destructive behaviors. So it was a rich training ground for sure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, let me take that really quick here. I've never heard of the phrase dialectical behavior therapy. So maybe since you brought that up, I know it's your specialty. Can you help us understand what is the approach to, to this approach to therapy? What does this entail? How does how come it's separate on its own? Sure. Um, so it was developed by Marshall Linehan, and probably the manual was coming out in I believe maybe the early nineties, but. 
she was working on it in the 80s, and uh, it was, she initially developed it because uh, she was working with uh, a group of women who were chronically suicidal and who met criteria for borderline personality disorder and who were not responding to traditional cognitive behavioral therapy. And so she, um, uh, when she started that, she began to bring together a dialectic, basically, of two components of behaviorism and core mindfulness strategies that were taken from Zen meditation. And interwoven with that was the concept of dialectics, which is basically the idea of finding synthesis or integration between things that are opposites, Um, the idea of acceptance and change in therapy, the idea that my patient could want to live and want to die at exactly the same time. And there are all kinds of other dialectics that are woven throughout the therapy. But it is basically, I know a lot of people struggle with, is it a cognitive behavioral therapy? What's the difference between traditional CBT and The reality is is, is it is a cognitive behavioral therapy. It's just a different form of it that takes it a step further and, again, incorporates these other mechanisms of change. I always say it's sort of, it's it's a wonderful container of validation and acceptance, but woven in with a relentless pursuit of change. Mm. Wow, that sounds so... um I don't know, just on target to me. I just, that that makes a lot of sense to me. I'm not in the field, obviously, but that makes great sense to me. But I do want to understand, why do you believe so much in this, Penny? Why do you think it's it's been a, I mean, you've you've chosen to specialize in this. So what is it about this particular approach that you're so connected to? Um, Yes, it is. So um, when I started out, like I said, I got to work with patients that were presenting with um, dissociative identity disorder, with complex trauma uh, that had had numerous hospitalizations and numerous suicide attempts. And one of the things that um, it was helpful for was when patients were not benefiting from doing any further process or exposure work and were having difficulty with just having the skills for managing the day-to-day business of living, is what we call it, because their impulsive behaviors were so relentless that their quality of life um, was so poor, and they were basically living in and out of the hospital. And so that was my first exposure from another clinician who began teaching this in a trauma stabilization unit. And I didn't really know enough at that time to appreciate the whole structure of the model. But later on in my career, when I was working at uh, Seton Hospital and doing the adult intensive outpatient program, I naturally seemed to gravitate towards taking the patients that sometimes were struggling in other groups because they were either so dysregulated they couldn't tolerate being in a group or they were dissociated through group or they were having a lot of interpersonal conflict and temper outbursts and just having difficulty being contained. And so at that time, I went back to pulling out uh, the information on DBT and began my own training. And I went to the hospital and um, had a very supportive uh, supervisor and asked him if I could, you know, begin a DBT group at that time and that I would keep some research on it, I'd keep some statistics on it to see if it would help 
uh, if I could show that in using DBT that I could help keep patients out of the hospital longer. Because what DBT does the best is we can help reduce uh, the amount of hospitalizations, we can help reduce uh, suicide attempts, and we can help reduce um, self-destructive impulsive behaviors. That's what we do best, and we can help increase also, consistency in treatment, because many of our patients are high dropout, have a high dropout rate, because again, they have difficulty tolerating it. So I did this, and I started the first group, and I kept records um, so that I could show the hospital and see if they would support me continuing to do the program. And um, we did find that uh, out of the sample size that I had, that they were able to stay out of the hospital, and for those that did go back into the hospital, they stayed in fewer days because they wanted to be able to return to outpatient treatment. So, so it, basically, it is, um, it's a treatment that is very helpful in working with people that are basically struggling in making progress sometimes in, in other treatment approaches. Mm-hmm. Beautiful explanation, Penny. Thank you. That was that was very illuminating for me too. One of the things that you said earlier that I just have to drill down on just a little bit more because it gets back to one meaning in work, two motivation, and three even maybe perhaps even purpose. But you said that you you were attracted to. If I heard this right, you can correct me if I'm wrong. But I heard you say I think you said that you were attracted, especially to. I was. Yeah. 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 I was. I was because. I was attracted to the fact that it was practical. I was attracted to the fact that um, what I noticed in many patients who had had a lot of treatment, which, again, many of the clients that uh, I felt were good candidates for DDT, they had done a lot of treatment. They had insight. They were very bright. They had a lot of insight into what was happening and why they were doing certain things. But I realized that, you know, that doesn't mean that we actually have the skills for making the changes that we want. We've all made New Year's resolutions, correct? And then, you know, they kind of all fall apart. And, you know, DPT is a very structured, practical approach to helping people be more skillful under a state of arousal, right? And for all of us, really, trying to be as effective as we can under a state of arousal, I think is a challenge for all of us. It's just a more pervasive challenge for many of my clients. Um, I think that we can all agree that when we're in a calm state of mind, we can be much more effective in how we behave and how we respond than when, we, than when we're upset or angry or dysregulated about something. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so that's, yeah, that's what I was, I was attracted to the structural program, the structure of the, the therapy. Um, a lot of therapy is very kind of open-ended and doesn't seem to have a lot of objective measure around if the therapy is effective. <laughs> and I think that uh, DBT has, is very transparent about what we're doing with patients. And there's nothing that I'm going to do with a patient that I haven't oriented them to. And also that we have some objective measures on outcomes of being able to observe if the intensity and frequency of targets are going down. Mm-hmm. I love how you explain all that, Penny. It makes so much sense to me, too. 
I can see why why that would all make sense for that mind of yours and what I know of you so far and the friendship we've had over the years. Um, I have to also drill down on one more thing because it's interesting to me because I obviously am a business owner. You you have a position at, at Seton Behavioral Health as a clinical director of dialectical behavior therapy intensive outpatient program, and you also have your own practice. So I'm just curious as to how you find your clients. Are they referring themselves maybe to you? Or is somebody sending them to you? Or how is it that you get your clients? Well, I have been in the Austin community now for you know a little while for about uh, uh, I guess about sixteen years now. So I have uh, gotten to know a lot of people in the therapeutic community, and when I've worked at Seton full time, I also did a lot of their marketing. And when I started the first DBT group, of course, I got to do marketing with a lot of professionals, and I have. Um, done presentations in the community for different agencies and at, and at like, University of Texas for some of their classes. And so, you know, I have gotten to form relationships with many of the psychiatrists and other providers in town. And so, you know, early on, we were one of the first DBT teams in Austin. And so uh, many clinicians... Uh, definitely would contact me uh, to make referrals in regards to patients that they felt like were not making progress or patients that uh, they felt were presenting with some borderline behavioral patterns and they didn't feel that that was their expertise. So I, I get a lot of referrals from uh, from the community, which is separate from the hospital. I don't, I don't, take the referrals from the hospital. I get, I get mine from the community. So okay. that's typically how that works out. And because okay. with the program, I'm doing all of their clinical management. So when I go there, I am helping to train and treat my staff. One of the other really wonderful things I love about DBT is that it really pays attention to treating the clinician and making sure that the clinician has accountability on a weekly team where we can reduce our own therapy interfering behaviors. And I think that's an important part of treatment. Um, so that Keeping, we, uh, keeping, the, keeping not, the, the clinicians healthy, right? Yes, exactly. And it's not only... It, it, it's about helping to observe how we can interfere with the process as opposed to only seeing a patient as being difficult or resistant. You know, there's a power imbalance in therapy, and I think that it's important for clinicians to be held accountable uh, for managing, you know, their their own styles that are in the therapy room, and DBT does a good job of that. Uh, a component of the treatment is that the therapist... Penny, just hold that thought for just a second here. i got to go for a quick break, and I, I want to hear more about that because I know it's a very important part of your practice. So hold that thought. It's time for our first break. Sure, I'm Elise Cortez, sure. your host. We've been on the air with Penny Kruger, who serves as the clinical director of the Dialectical Behavior Therapy Intensive Outpatient Program at Seton Behavioral Health in Austin, and also has her own private practice with DBT Associates. We've been talking really about how she got into her, her career and why she loves it. After the break, we'll talk more about maybe why some of these, some of these trends in, in um, behavioral health are actually occurring. Stay with us.
us on Facebook to keep up with what's empowering the world. Voice America Empowerment. Elise Cortez is a speaker and engagement and development catalyst. She designs and delivers professional development, leadership, and engagement workshops and can bring her expertise to your organization. She will help ignite meaningful development within your workforce that will increase employee engagement, performance, and retention. To learn more or to invite Elise to speak to your organization, please visit her at www.elisecortez.com. She would welcome the opportunity to help get your employees working on purpose. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings of the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our wall. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog, Press Pass? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective. Plus topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. It's just a click away at VAPressPass.com. That's VAPressPass.com. VA Press Pass by Voice America. All access, all the time. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com This is Working on Purpose with Elise Cortez. To reach our program today, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You may also send an email to Elise, A-L-I-S-E, at EliseCortez.com. Now, back to Working on Purpose. Thanks for staying with us, and welcome back to the Working on Purpose show. We're here with Penny Kruger, who serves as the Clinical Director of the Dialectical Behavior Therapy Intensive Outpatient Program at Seton Behavioral Health in Austin. She also has a private practice with DPT Associates. She specializes in treating patients struggling with impulsive behavior patterns, and her experience uh, includes anger management, self-injury, sexual compulsivity, and binge purge behavior, all things that I think people find intriguing and want to learn more about and understand what's behind. I'm Elise Cortez, your host. I want to pick pick up where we left off there, Penny. Before the break, you were talking about the work that you do, helping other clinicians really stay healthy and well-trained and on track. Can you say more about what you're doing with with them and that kind of work? Sure. I... I do supervise clinicians at the hospital, and I meet on my own team weekly. I also offer um, supervision and consultation groups for clinicians who want to learn more about DDT. And again, at the end of the day, you know, my goal is to really help clinicians with application. I want them to uh, be able to have a space where they can sort of out themselves and their own therapy interfering behaviors because that's the, the most effective way for us to be able to, you know, have a better outcome with, with the clients. And I think, again, the DBT model provides a nice structure for doing that. And I think that clinicians, I think that clinicians need the supervision to be able to, to be able to 
um, go into these settings and work with whatever client presents themselves so that they feel competent and confident to be able to uh, do what's necessary. What I appreciate about that, Penny, is I think it's, for me, certainly it's encouraging to know that that, that's some of the work that you do because all of us rely on these people who are still human beings at the end of the day who have their own needs and, you know, sets of things to deal with. And and the fact that you're providing uh, training and a service to really continue to support them in a healthy way, I think is really encouraging. I, I really appreciate hearing that and the work you're doing there. Well, you're welcome. It's definitely an important piece to me. Um, I have definitely heard my fair share of stories of cases that have come completely, um, you know, they've come apart uh, when a clinician was working with a patient that they just they weren't aware of what they had in front of them and they didn't have the experience or the expertise to be doing that work at the time. And again, that can happen to all of us, um, but I think it's important for for clinicians to have the support that they need. And really, if I didn't have my weekly support, and I've got 20 years experience, if I didn't have my weekly team meetings, um, I, I feel like I would really notice the increase in burnout. And that's a big deal is to, for, for mental health professionals, is to be able to manage their burnout because the first rule of thumb in our business should be first do no harm. And so, and I always tell my, my supervisees, don't take apart anything you can't put back together. So I, I think it's important for us to have that, uh, that connection with our colleagues. Mm-hmm. I agree, and uh, I wholly applaud that. And so beyond that, one of the things I wanted to get into here with you, I think you have a very unique perspective to help us maybe understand maybe why we're seeing some of these d- d- impulsive behavior patterns developing. And I, I kind of want to understand if you could maybe comment on that, maybe what's going on for people? Why are we seeing this kind of a, a trend? And I also want to get into maybe some of the history and such. But first, what do you think is underneath that? What's, what in society maybe might be contributing to that? That's a big question. It's a big question, but, you know, self-injury is, I mean, impulsive behaviors are a wide spectrum, right? We like to talk about eating disorder behavior, uh, non-suicidal self-injury, suicidal gestures, temper outbursts, sexual compulsivity. There's many different forms of impulsive behaviors, and many of them actually have been around since early times. Uh, you know, binge purge behavior was certainly occurring, you know, during the Roman period where they would gorge themselves and then go and purge later. Um, there's certainly been um, uh, self-injury reported even in early cultural civilizations like uh like the Mayan cultural, the mm. Mayan civilization, things like that, in as far as ritual or religious purposes. But currently, you know, there I think there's a couple of things that are making the numbers high or so pronounced. And part of that I think is because we are doing a better job talking about it. We're so we're doing a better job with people being able to report it um, and reducing some of the stigma and the shame around it. Um, We're also uh, providing more treatment opportunities for impulsive behavior patterns where I think that, you know, prior to that, many people 
lived in secrecy or shame. And so there's a lot of things to encourage it. We also have a lot of things in social media, though, that reinforce it, uh, obviously with you know, some of the physical ideals in regards to eating disorders and the expectations around physical ideals. There are certainly a lot of things that my, many of my clients can find anything on the Internet in regards to uh, all kinds of sites about uh, self-injury and suicidality and things like that. So, you know, on the one hand, it's more open, which I think is helpful so that we can have a more open dialogue and reduce the secrecy. And on the other hand, um, there is a lot more exposure, which on some level can produce a contagion effect as well. Mm-hmm. And do you have any, any, any insight at all, Penny, as to how maybe we Americans compare in terms of a population against others across the world? Are, are we more prone to this sort of thing or less so? Or Do you have any insight into that? Well, the, due to the dif- the differences in in reporting and how uh, like things like self injury are even defined in different cultures, it's hard to compare apples to apples. But I can say that actually the rates of like suicide are higher in some of the Asian countries and uh, like uh, South Korea, um, Sri Lanka. Um, I think I was reading that China has uh, one of the highest rates for eating disorders. And I can't really speak to why that is. I know some people refer to some of the the harsh discipline in the culture and things like that, but um, I can't say that for sure. Actually, I was surprised. I feel like here in the United States, um, I certainly see a lot more... uh, Reports of self-injury, particularly in the adolescent population, uh, has a little bit of a uh, sort of a culture around self-injury, and sometimes in the high schools, um, and where there are a lot of uh, adolescents um, that will uh, try it out to experiment, but that doesn't mean that they'll go on to become long-term self-injurers either. So. Yeah, there's a lot. So there's a lot of different behaviors that we're comparing, and there's a lot of different variables that are influencing this. But it is going on around. That that is certain. Mm. Interesting. Very interesting conversation. I I was uh, you're surprising me, but I, I'm glad to hear this. It's quite fascinating. Interesting stuff. Yeah, um, I think we just have more of an open dialogue here in America mm, about it. Mm. Well, that's way. encouraging. Yeah, that's encouraging yeah. to me. Mm-hmm. Well, along those lines, one of the other things that I thought you might have a u- unique perspective on, and again, you know, you, you practice in a, in, in a field that many of us, of course, can't, we're not there, we can't quite glimpse it. And it strikes me that you're able to maybe learn something about, you know, the human condition that, in a way that many of us can't. So I'm just curious if maybe you feel like you've gleaned any insight or learned anything from your clients that it has perhaps heightened or improved your understanding of what it is to be human. Have you? Absolutely. Um, I feel like it sounds cliche, but I just, but it's so true. I get so much more from my clients, I feel like, than they get from me at times. I, um, if there's one thing that is a, a powerful lesson that I continue to learn with with many of my patients, most of my patients, is that is that the, is the paradox of vulnerability and strength. 
uh, and the idea that uh, they can present as so fragile and other people might see them as being chaotic or or disorganized or, you know, not functioning well. And at the same time, they are able to tolerate unbelievable things um, that many of us can't even imagine tolerating in our lifetime. You know, many of my patients do come with really significant complex trauma histories, not all of them, um, but a good portion of them. And so their ability to tolerate is always so much larger than they give themselves credit for. Not to mention that many of them are engaged in careers themselves where their ability to tolerate other people's emotional uh, intensity is really high. Like I have many patients who, you know, they might work in the emergency room as a nurse or they're an EMT or they work with hospice, with death and dying. Right? And that, that requires such a, uh, a large container to be able to do that work. And, and they do an amazing job. Just so it's an interesting dialectic to hold. That on the one hand, they could really be struggling with tolerating sometimes the most basic of things in their own life. And on the other side of that, they can have an amazing talent to tolerate and be helpful to those around them because they're, because of their, their heightened sensitivity to emotions, uh, again, not all, but many of my patients are extremely empathic uh, to those around them and, and do a lot of wonderful work uh, in their lives and in the community and, of course, can create amazing pieces of writing and art um, that uh, are just an amazing thing to behold. So they they always surprise me and impress me, and it reminds me of their strengths, which is an important feature. Another thing that, you know, I work with clinicians around is that it's, if you if you really don't believe in the strengths, in the um, the capacity of what your patients are capable of doing, it's going to be really hard for you to be effective with them. If you are being too swayed into believing or buying into that they are only fragile or broken or that, um, uh, and, and the clinician is feeling hopeless themselves about the ability to change. It's going to be hard to do to do good work, and so that is something that I have definitely learned over my 20 years. Is I have seen some pretty tough cases, um, and uh, my patients never ever cease to to surprise me um, about what they're capable of. One of the things that I really want to call out there that I have always been struck with as you've spoken about your work, Penny, and I just feel like it just really, you know, it's important to, to say is just just the sheer beautiful way that you just have a, a wonderful respect for people and an appreciation for what they're going through. And I mean, I can't imagine people can't absolutely discern that and respond to that in such a positive way. And I just it just oozes from you. And it's just it's lovely. It's a lovely thing about you. Thank you. I appreciate that. I think that was a piece that I learned accidentally was in DBT, they call it, you know, going where angels fear to tread. 
Mm. And um, noticing uh, being able to go in with somebody who is in such a place of despair and really not sure if they want to live or die and truly ambivalent in that space and being able to be in that space with them while also being brave enough to still push for change. Mm-hmm. Say that phrase again. Something about with, where angels don't go, what'd you say? Uh, <laughs> uh, Marshall Linehan refers to going where angels fear to tread. Oh my so gosh, some, that's powerful. Yeah, well, because sometimes, again, the level of emotional intensity whether it be anger or just the sheer depth of the despair or suicidality that some of my clients might be presenting with, um, oftentimes they have reinforced their other therapists to kind of stay out, to kind of back off <laughs> that, you know, that they're too fragile to handle them coming in. And uh, that's where DDT really holds both those things where, we are really, obviously, first and foremost, focused on validating the very real depths of the pain, um, but also being able to stay the course with that if they don't make changes, then everything stays the same. Mm-hmm. And the misery continues, or the pain continues. Yes. Um, yes. There's an assumption in DBT called, that says um, we believe, and it's a dialectic in itself, we believe that patients are doing the best that they can and they still have to do it better. Wow, what a great way to cue us up for a break here, Penny. Perfect timing. Such a rich and beautiful dialogue, just what I was hoping for. I'm Elise Cortez, your host. We've been on the air with Penny Kruger, who serves as the clinical director of the Dialectical Behavior Therapy Intensive Outpatient Program at Seton Behavioral Health in Austin. She also has a private practice with DBT Associates. We've been talking a little bit about what she's learned from her patients and how that's enriched her life and her understanding of how to treat them. After the break, I want to hear a little bit about how it is she goes about the treatment. Stay with us. Friend us on Facebook to keep up with what's empowering the world. Voice America Empowerment. Elise Cortez is a speaker and engagement and development catalyst. She designs and delivers professional development, leadership, and engagement workshops and can bring her expertise to your organization. She will help ignite meaningful development within your workforce that will increase employee engagement, performance, and retention. To learn more or to invite Elise to speak to your organization, please visit her at www.elisecortez.com. She would welcome the opportunity to help get your employees working on purpose. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all our show archives on demand. All from your iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. Want more positivity in your life? 
Are you ready to get healthy, happy, and energized? Join the Stella Donna Goddess Gals, Cynthia Bryan, and Heather Brittany for a power hour of stimulating, supportive conversation on Star Style. Be the star you are. A lineup of best-selling authors, celebrities, and experts. Join the effervescent mother-daughter dynamic duo in this upbeat, positive, life-changing talk radio playground. Star Style. Be the star you are. Wednesdays, 4 to 5 p.m. Pacific, 7 to 8 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Lend us your ears. It's power time. Follow us on Twitter for more great ideas at Voice America Empowerment. This is Working on Purpose with Elise Cortez. To reach our program today, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You may also send an email to Elise, A-L-I-S-E, at EliseCortez.com. Now, back to Working on Purpose. Thanks for staying with us, and welcome back to the Working on Purpose show. I'm Elise Cortez, your host, calling in from Dallas, my home base. We're here with Penny Kruger, who serves as the clinical director of the Dialectical Behavior Therapy Intensive Outpatient Program at Seton Behavior Health in Austin. She also has a private practice with DBT Associates, and she specializes in treating patients struggling with impulsive behavior patterns. Um, Her many specialties include anger management, self-injury, sexual compulsivity, and binge purge behavior. She's been talking a little bit about what she's been learning about patients and how she connects with them, which I feel like has just been a wonderful and profound conversation that I so appreciate and just what I was hoping for. Next, what I'd like to do, Penny, if you could, I, I think that listeners would like to understand just so, okay, so we've identified these, these challenges with your patients. How do you go about treating them? I'm sure that every case is different, but kind of help us understand how do you generally go about working with a new client and maybe how long might their treatment last? Sure. Well, and so, so one of the things that makes CBT so helpful is that oftentimes many of my clients have been in long-term treatment, and what happens is therapists will realize after they've been in treatment for a while that they've basically just been treating sort of repeated crises, whatever the crisis is at the time, and feeling like they're just constantly sort of working on putting out fires. And so one of the things with DBT is that we, it's a structured treatment where when patients come in, the first thing we're going to do is structure the treatment targets. And there are certain things that are non-negotiable, which are the life-threatening targets. And so treating things, anything obviously that is life-threatening, whether it be suicidal gestures or any other behaviors that are related to suicidal behavior. It's going to go to the top. And that's a non-negotiable in DBT that that's going to be the focus if they're going to do treatment with us. They are agreeing to that and, um, and willing to do that. The second, the second tier is that we, that I think that we do very well is that we help to identify the therapy interfering behaviors on the part of the patient, and of course, I make my patients aware that we're also observing from mine that come up, and I love that. I feel like it's such a level playing field so that it's not just about the 
patients feeling like they're the only ones <laughs> being held accountable for what happens in the therapy room. Because, uh, like I said before, uh, oftentimes by the time people come to me, they've done a lot of treatment and they don't feel like they're making progress. And so I really want to help them sort out if there are any therapy interfering behaviors on their part that might be disrupting treatment. So the next phase, though, is the quality of life behaviors. And this is where we attend to the impulsive behavioral patterns, um, ones that may not be necessarily life-threatening, but that are breaking down the quality of their life, whether that be intense interpersonal conflict, temper outbursts, um, you know, binge substance abuse eating disordered behavior, uh, sexual compulsivity. And again, all those targets can be higher in intensity, but uh, most of the time they come under quality of life. And so so there is a clear structure to what we're going to pay attention to and when. And we uh, teach the skills in the skills training group to our patients that are meant to address these targets. So when patients first come to us, the first year of treatment, they are signing up for a year. Obviously, they don't have to stay, but the goal is for the first year to be about really helping to reduce what we call reduced behavioral discontrol, meaning quieting down the behaviors that are causing more fallout uh, from their clients because, obviously, a lot of their despair and hopelessness about the future um, or even prompting event for a suicide attempt is hopelessness about constantly having to clean up the after effects of some of these behaviors. So we spend the first treatment really stabilizing those things and then and then we begin to reassess if we want to move on to more exposure work. That is so helpful to understand, Penny. Thank you for that. I, I had no idea, and the way you laid that all out just makes a lot of sense. And again, for those people out there listening, considering perhaps joining the field or, or transitioning from their current ca- career to perhaps psychology, very helpful to understand just what's involved and what's the timeline. So beautiful. Um, next, if you could, I would love to hear you paint um, a picture for us of a successful case. How might you describe or characterize your client's lives before or after successful treatment? Um, in other words, I'm looking for the impact. How do you know you've done it? Sure. Together you've done it. Sure. Yeah. Well, I've been doing it long enough now where I have been really just lucky to have a lot of wonderful clients who um are in what we call just maintenance, and they just have booster sessions with me. I have patients that live all over the country who call who, even if they don't live here anymore, they may call me for for a booster session, Um, but that have been stable for, you know, uh, one or more years. And, um, And by stable, we mean, you know, obviously being able to stay out of the hospital and... Um, and then some of the higher level targets, mostly again, the high level impulsive behavioral patterns, um, have stabilized. And at that time, you know, we're moving into what we call, uh, only dealing with problems in daily living, you know, dealing with regular relationship problems, dealing with regular issues around school or work and things like that. So I can definitely give an example of a client I had, um, uh, it was a male client who uh, who had had um, about three attempts um, when they came to me and uh, had 
you know, a history of sexual compulsivity and some binge substance abuse. And um, when they came to me, they were just stepping down from uh, their third hospitalization and uh, their third attempt. And so uh, we began, you know, stage one treatment, uh, which lasted for about, we were probably in stage one for about a year and a half. Uh, maybe two years, because it, it can take a long time as far as motivation and also going back to targets, kind of presenting themselves even after they've fired a day of. Um, so spent about a year and a half to two years really stabilizing uh, the staying out of the hospital, um, which he was able to do. He was able to stay out of the hospital and then spending more time just really working on the impulsive behavioral patterns while he was trying to finish up his Ph.D. And uh, so after that first two-year period, we just moved to, again, move more into problems of daily living, managing schoolwork, organizing time, managing interpersonal effectiveness to deal with professors and teachers and other relationships and things like that. And, uh, and then he was able to uh, complete uh, his doctorate and went through a mild crisis at that point um, as uh, he had had a relationship loss and was dealing with increased anxiety around having to you know, the bar was raised now. He had been in school for a long time of having to find employment. And uh, so came back in for, uh, I don't know, probably about uh, three months uh, to do some, some more work around uh, the skills for managing the vulnerability that was coming up and, uh, and was able to resume his normal level of functioning. And so now, uh, again, I see, I, you know, he just calls me as needed, basically when he might run into a conflict with dealing with the interpersonal stuff at work that's kind of breaking him down, uh, or uh, problems in his intimate relationship with his partner. Again, what we call LGBT problems in daily living. We call those normal, everyday problems because the client is able to manage those things without moving into more crisis-oriented behavior. Mm, wonderful. I love hearing success stories, Penny. It was great to get a, a bit of an example there, too. Well, of course, protecting the identity, that's wonderful. Uh, we're coming to a close, so I just have really two more things I want to see if I can extract from you before you, you fall off my, my, my air airspace. Um, but the next thing I have to ask you is, you know that I'm a meeting and work researcher. I really care about how people are connected to their work, and we've been learning that about you. But for the sake of our listeners understanding really how you're connected to your work, what, are, what is it about the work that really keeps you there? What is it that you find meaningful about the work? Gosh, so many things. <laughs> it's a lot of things. Um, you know, back to your first question that you asked me about, you know, how, I'm, how I felt a, a good fit with this field early on. I think that's something I learned early on about my temperament is that I, I really enjoy uh, being able to be involved in a, in a more intimate way with other human beings. And so, you know, having the, the honor and the, and the gift of being able to be a part of so many people's intimate lives over the last 20 years um, has nourished me um, in a way that I'm not 
I'm not sure anything else could. And, you know, I obviously, for those of people out there, listeners who are thinking about going into the field, you know, I do want to speak to the other side, which is that, you know, some days I just want to own a flower shop, no doubt. (laughs) (laughs) On those really tough days, (laughs) I just want to have to manage plants today Um, and taking care of them. But, But the reality is, is those days, are not the majority. Um, uh, that's usually just an indicator that I need to go back and fill up my own gas tank. That maybe I am, you know, feeling depleted myself. But I, I never, I never tire of uh, again having the privilege of being invited in and into people's intimate lives in this way, and and them trusting me. Uh, with that information, trusting me to keep that information safe, confidential, and that, and that I'm going to have their best interests at heart. That's an amazing amount of trust, mm-hmm. um, and, I, and I don't take that. I don't take that lightly. I feel fiercely protective of of my patients in that sense. That uh, I I want to make sure that they get the best the best treatment necessary. Mm, That's gorgeous, Penny. Thank you for that. And it was just so beautifully expressed. And again, this is why I do the work that I do, because hearing people narrate that kind of a connection to their work is, I can tell you, people hunger for that, Penny. I know you know that, but it's just people really would love to experience work like that. So thank you for that beautiful rendition. Uh, You're welcome. I have enjoyed being on the show. (laughs) Well, I'm so glad. I'm glad I, I'm glad I talked into it. Um, we have just really just a couple <laughs> minutes left here. I always like to give my guests, if you will, a bit of the last word. So maybe in, say, 60 seconds, um, it, what, kind of, what would you like to leave our listeners with today? Well, if you are thinking about a career, I'll just say this, in mental health, um, I'll end with that it is, uh, it is meaningful work. I don't think... Uh, that you would regret, but to also be aware of the goodness of fit for yourself, to be aware of your own temperament style, and to know that to be in this field, it has many different arenas. It's not just about private practice, and it's not just about clinical, direct clinical care. There's many different avenues of being able to be with people and help people, and so to know your goodness of fit, um, I think that's the key ingredient to helping direct caregivers to manage or reduce burnout. Again, I work with a lot of nurses and doctors and you know, EMTs and things like that, and uh, that's a big piece. Of, Wonderful. Uh, wow, Penny. What a wonderful way to close. I really want to thank you again for agreeing to be on the show and sharing your expertise, your wisdom, your spirit, everything. It was just beautiful. Thank you again. Thank you, Elise. Thanks for having me. I enjoyed yeah. it. I'm glad. Well, if you want to learn more about Miss Penny Kruger, you can visit her website, uh, which is pennykruger.com. So it's P-E-N-N-Y-K-R-U-G-E-R.com. What she's doing, I think, is very important work, and I think that it it serves us all very well. I feel like we've learned some very useful things from her in this conversation. So thank you for that. 
Next week, the show will feature James Archer, who found his purpose at age 52 in the domain of languages and cultures. In founding his company called ShareLingo, he hopes to meaningfully connect cultures and unify the planet. Small little goal there. A dream he knows that will take longer than his lifetime to accomplish, but for which he hopes his social enterprise company will facilitate progress towards. So you know how I like to close all my programs. Work is at least one-third of my life, so let's work on purpose. We hope you've enjoyed this week's program. Be sure to tune in to Working on Purpose, featuring your host, Elise Cortez, every Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. This week, find your life's purpose at work. (laughs) 